The Ordinary Folk Podcast is a project that highlights the fortitude of common, everyday people through storytelling. This is a collection of stories that showcases silent human resilience, heartbreak, and triumph. You can follow this podcast at Ordinary Folk Podcast on Instagram, and you can be a part of this project by reaching out to me at ordinaryfolkpodcast at gmail.com. My guest today opens up about her dark past using drugs, being rejected by her mother, and living through very adult experiences as a minor. Today, she highlights how her life has changed since she left jail and how she hopes to better her community for other young people going through similar issues. Welcome to the podcast, Sophia. Hi. Yeah, so I'm going to start you off with how was your childhood and what was it like growing up? I'm Chinese and Indian, so my mm-hmm. father's Chinese, my mom is Indian, and they were both um, from the boomer generation. So back then, in Singapore, at the very least, it was very conservative. You wouldn't see a lot of, you know, interracial couples. And what happened is that when my dad got together with my mom, I, you know, when you grow up, you think you have a happy family. All you see is relatives, you have family events, and it's all love and happiness, right? Eventually, when I was three, my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, passed away. Right after she passed away, my entire Chinese side abandoned my dad. So I haven't seen them in years. Uh, I have no idea how my cousins look like anymore on my dad's side. And that sort of um, gave me a sense of mistrust really early in life because it's coming from family. And at the same time, my mother was, a, she's a very strong character. She always raised me in a way where she will tell me things like, don't depend on anybody. You know, you have to be able to support yourself. Sometimes she would say things like, don't get married. I think she's projecting her fears or whatever she, you know, had gone through in life. She projected it on me. And she's always been the one to push me to be really hard. She put me on a pedestal, basically. She put me on a really, really high pedestal. And growing up, I've always had to fight to maintain the status quo. Uh, I have a younger brother. He's only one year younger than me. On the other hand, he got off really sheltered. He was more pampered. He was more sheltered. Um, My mom wasn't that hard on him as she was on me. So I had to grow up really, really early. I... Since I was seven, I knew about family problems here and there. Uh, My dad actually went into prison from the time I was seven till nine. So during those years, my mother suffered trying to raise two kids by herself. I think she went through a bout of depression because uh, she would project all of that on us. So we would get beatings. Uh, I was chased out of the house for a bit when I was eight for something minor. I mean, obviously, it will imprint on you at that age. You're so young. You're just a kid. But... um, I never blamed her for it. I guess, in a way, I sort of understand. You know, my mom's only human at the end of the day. They don't get a parenting instruction manual when they become parents. But has it sort of impacted me? It definitely has. I didn't really have to... I didn't have the leeway to be a child because I was forced to grow up, to be mature, study well, get good grades, get a good job. All that was ingrained in my head. My dad, he always got himself into trouble. So my dad would go into debt. He used to borrow from illegal loan sharks. So we've had to move a couple of places when I was younger because we would get paint splashed on our door or we would receive threats um, from the loan sharks. They would send us hell notes that um, Chinese people, the Taoist people use in burning offerings. And my mother was fearful for her life. We couldn't even leave the door open. I moved about three times. Uh, I had to move schools as well, go to a new school, start all over. 
every single time we moved somewhere else, my mother exhausted all her savings trying to pay off my dad's debt so that why we was wouldn't... he taking these debts? What was the money for? We don't really have an answer till this day. It's crazy. We don't have an answer till this day because the money didn't go into the family. The money didn't go into a business. It, we have no idea where the money went to. And my mother never asked him either. Maybe she doesn't want to face the truth. She doesn't want to listen to whatever he has to say in case it will hurt her more. So she just takes it upon herself to finish it, to clear it, because at the end of the day, she has to worry for two kids. So when you got to high school and you're really transitioning from being a kid and going through all of this family conflict, what was high school like for you then? Because it seems like you were probably a lot more mature than the other girls your age. I was, but at the same time, because I was still growing up and I had all that sort of repressed emotions, I would say. So I... I have this streak of rebellion in me. It was sort of my own way of, you know, fighting against whatever my mother had created me to be. I yearned to be free, completely free, to be able to make my own mistakes, to be able to put myself in certain situations and then learn from it. That's actually how I learn. I make a lot of bad decisions and then I learn from it. I feel like when you get a first-hand experience, you, you know, when you touch fire and you get burned, you know not to touch fire again, that kind of thing. My mother, till this day, is the only person I am virtually afraid of. She can make or break me with just one word. That's it. So um, in high school, I started, you know, acting out even more. And I was always, I was always that girl to act out, you know. I was always the girl to not be quiet. I was very outspoken even when I was a young girl. If somebody were to falsely accuse me, even as a kid, I would argue my way out of it. And I will make sure that you know that I do not like to be accused of something else. Or um, if I'm put in a situation where I feel uncomfortable, I was never the girl to shy away. I will tell you like it is and I will call you out if it has to come to it. So when I became a teenager and I was growing up, I started you know, rebelling. We all have that face where we're just wanting to have fun, you know. I ended up falling into a lot of the wrong company. The worst part of it all was that I knew what I was doing was wrong, but I still went ahead because in my head, in my mind during that point in time, it was me going against whatever I was brought up to be. Like, I wanted to be me. I was discovering me. So um, I got into a lot of trouble. I was a smart girl. I used to get really good grades all the time. But at the same time, I wanted to just step out of that mold. So I got into a lot of trouble. Um, I started out with really unhealthy habits really, really young. All that caused a bigger strain with my relationship with my mother. And I already did not have a good relationship with my mother to start with. It got to a point where I was literally disowned during my teenage oh. years. Were you kicked out of the house at all? Yeah. Um, so uh, I started talking to this one girl who introduced me to drugs. Despite the fact knowing that, you know, drugs are not healthy for you. You shouldn't do drugs. Uh, I still went ahead, you know. I still wanted to discover it for what it was. Someone in school who was also doing the same thing and she got caught at first. So I was in a convent girl's school. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> she got caught at first and she ratted the rest of us out. I just so happened to be at the principal's office that day because I was calling in sick and I wanted to go back home. It was uncanny, but at the same time, my dad found some of my drug paraphernalia at the house. He wasn't coming to the school to pick me up. He was actually coming to the school to tell the principal that I have been doing drugs. And so I was sent to the narcotics bureau for a P-test and to get my statement done. I was 15 then. So when that happened, um, my mother kicked me out and she literally ignored me for two years of my life. She would treat me like I was invisible, even though like my dad managed to convince her to allow me to come back home. There was years of my life where I spent in a rented room from a friend because my mother kicked me out. So you were 16, living on your own? Actually, uh, I was 13, living on my own. And then I went oh. back home. I went back home and then 15, it started again. So I lived alone for a while when I was 15, just for a short while. But then my dad got really worried. So he managed to convince my mother to, you know, let me come back home. I lied, I, I lied about my age at a really dodgy bar and I was working as a waitress, you know. So when all of that happened, obviously it made me feel very small, like I didn't matter. And it's coming from my own mother, you know, the one person that gave you life, brought you into this world, and you're now dead to her because of a mistake. Her anger, I would say, is extremely toxic. She doesn't know how to truly express her emotions because of the way she grew up. And I had so many friends whose mothers are not, not in any way like my mom. You know, they could have conversations with their mothers. You know, sometimes they, you get into a little bit of a puppy love situation. They could go back home, run to their mothers, tell their mothers about it. But I could never, I could never do something like that. My mother was not a friend. And I understand that parents don't have to essentially be your friend. But at the same time, sometimes when you put a roof over my head and you give me food at the table, that's the bare minimum of being a parent. It's what you're supposed to do. The mental well-being of your child trumps everything else. And yeah. my mother, till this day, does not believe in mental health issues. Oh, she does wow. not. I always end up getting into an argument with her about it because of whatever I've been through with her and then with the family with outside influencers while I was living in the street certain stuff did happen to me that shouldn't have happened either uh, as well and those situations have in turn added on to my already deteriorating state of mental well-being. It's really tough to not have a parent sort of validate your mental health, especially when you're so very young, because it kind of closes off a whole sector of your health that you need to share with the parent in order to sort of heal, right? Because it's not like yeah. you're 25, you're, you're 13 or 15 years old experiencing yeah. very adult experiences. And they have be like more than a physical impact on you. Like, um, my other question was your relationship with your dad, because you're talking a lot about your mom here, but was his approval or his affection as impactful to you as your mom's? My dad has a more softer side. My father is a soft person. Um, in fact, he's one of the most selfless people I know. Despite his transgressions, he is 
a beautiful soul inside and out. He would be the one person, if he had zero dollars in his pocket, he would still help out somebody else at the expense of himself. And he's always done that. He's done that for his family growing up done that to the point where it has cost him so many things. He's very protective of me till this day. As close as I am with him, at the end of the day, it's a Asian family. You know, Asian families, we, we don't have that sort of openness with each other. Everything is more conservative. You can't really talk to your parents about a lot of things. To them, yeah. it's just, I will provide for you and you do what you're supposed to do. So when you're back in the house, does your relationship with your, like after this two years, what happens after the two year mark? Does your mom start acknowledging you? I only ever got a real proper relationship with her after I turned 18. And then things started to get better. And the worst part was I needed her the most during those years where I was on the streets myself. There was a, a situation when I was 15 and it was during the start of when she first kicked me out and I needed a place to stay. So I trusted a couple of wrong friends. I ended up staying at their house and I woke up being pinned down by my so-called friend while they raped me. So one guy had me down and the other guy. They actually dropped me off somewhere else after that where I did not know and I remember having to dig change in my wallet to call my dad to pick me up because I didn't know where else to go and I just needed somewhere safe and even though home was not a home it was better than whatever I had to go to for that entire day. So did your dad come and get you? He did. Uh, he didn't ask what happened. He doesn't know. None of my parents, my parents to this day don't know that this has happened to me. Nobody knows that this has happened to me. Because Did you think about reporting it at all to the police? No, because I felt like it was my fault. Wow, that's a lot to consider because I'm thinking about the fact that you're also 15, you're kicked out of the house, and then you go through this traumatic sexual assault. Do you feel like it would have helped you to share it with your mom? A little. Like, the idealistic part of me wants to be able to talk to my mom about things like this. But I already feel like I brought it upon myself. She's just going to emphasize that. She's going to magnify that. And it's going to be more of a I told you so kind of thing. I don't need that apathy. I need empathy, which is something she can't offer. And that's, a, I think, a sign of maturity on your side as well. Like, I think... Obviously, you want to have a, like a healthy relationship with your mom, but she might not have the healthiest intentions for you because to victim blame you or make you feel bad about an experience that you had really no control over, right? It, it's not going to help you. So as much as you want a relationship with your mom, I respect the fact that, you know, you, you do try to keep things private because it's not going to help you really. It'll do more harm than it will help. Growing up, I just always kept to myself. I would, it was always an internal battle. Now, I'm curious to know, do you feel like you've resolved that issue? Because I know often when people have sexual violence or sexually violent experiences in their past, they push it down to a point where, especially as a child, you push it down to a point where you don't acknowledge it fully. So have yeah. you addressed what happened at all? Emotionally? Um, it took a while to get there, but um, I did a little bit of like a half-half thing. So I repressed some parts of it and then, but I don't blame myself for it on, anymore. So I guess that's progress when it comes to healing. I, I've never blamed myself after 
after a few yeah. years, I sit back and I think about it, it. It wasn't my fault. Yeah. No, of course not. Nobody asked for it to happen to them. You needed to sleep somewhere. You were kicked out of your home. So you right. were in a situation you already had no control of. It's not like you could have stayed home. You weren't welcome there. So you had yeah. to find alternative housing. What happens with insecure housing is sometimes we're a lot more vulnerable, especially as women to, you know, other people coming into that space, right? Were there any government assistance for a person your age? Because I know where I live, if a 15-year-old is homeless, like the government will step in and find you housing, find you security. Was that available to you at all? No. Over here, it's not like that. So if, let's say, if you were to be disowned and you have nowhere to go and you go to the police, they'll just send you back to your house and try to solve the domestic dispute. Yeah. Okay. So then you really had no options. No. And sometimes you just trust the wrong people. At that age, you're naive and you believe that people want to help you. You said your relationship with your mom started getting better around 18. What happened around that age that facilitated that? I just feel like she softened eventually over the years. My mother today, compared to when I was growing up, they're almost two separate people. It's quite funny. Maybe her anger dissipated. I was doing better. You know, I was studying better. I was I was actually doing a psychology and law diploma. It was more of along the lines of the daughter she wanted and yearned for. So she obviously would be slightly okay with that. She really did soften over the years. She started to understand more. Maybe she was listening to radio shows and they provided her with other stories that you know, she could better understand. But I feel like she probably just got tired of the whole situation. At the end of the day, I'm her daughter. I know she loves me. It just took her a while to get there. To this day, she doesn't say I love you, by the way. My parents do not respond to I love you. Oh, interesting. That's something that's come up a few times on this show is not being able to verbalize any sort of affection. Yeah, yeah, affection. (laughs) And you said your mom changed. Was she able to acknowledge mental health issues or anxiety and Mm, things like that? No. um, Even sometimes to this day, I I get into an uncle for it because she would use the whole um, back then there was no such thing as depression. And I would just sit there and tell her, mom, it's not that back then there was no such thing. It's just that it was not publicized. It was not talked about. People still suffered from depression. That's why there was suicide still happening back then. They didn't have the proper outlet to get help or seek treatment for. And treatment could be exclusive back in the day. It's it's just not that talked about now. You're only seeing it more prominent now because more people are stepping forward to share their experiences. More people are finding strength in helping other people that are going through issues like that. So you said you you started to study. Um, how is that experience? Well, I always like studying. I always like learning. Even as a kid, um, I was a big bookworm. I would read constantly. So studying to me, it's not difficult. I generally enjoy learning new things. And even as a kid, I would have fascinations for topics that would be out of my age range. So when I got to my diploma in psychology and law, it was not really out of my comfort zone at all. In fact, it feels natural. Being somewhere where I can discuss things or or actually learning things of my interest in a way does a lot of good for me. I feel very comfortable. What drew you towards psychology and law? 
I was in the debate team in elementary school. And then as a person, I have this really strong sense of justice. As a kid, I knew for a fact that I just want to be able to someday leave a legacy of sorts where I can impact someone, make a change or fight for the underdog or fight for people that, you know, could not speak. And then also not discounting my experiences that have happened to me. It sort of pushed that sense of justice even more. It got to a point where I just wanted to study law because I wanted to be able to defend the helpless. But then when you really do study the law, you understand that the law is not here to protect anybody. It's mm-hmm. just here to maintain order. It yeah. was never about justice in the first place. After a while, um, learning it, I the, the rose-tinted glasses come off and you start seeing it for what it really is. Has it changed what I want to do? No. It's just not you know a perfect, beautiful picture with a white picket fence anymore. For the sake of a timeline, after high school, you enter into college. And how long were you in college for? So for two years. And so after the two years, you've sort of fallen out of love with the things that you were studying. What was next for you? I actually went to work because my parents retired when I turned 18. 17, 18, that's when both my parents retired. I wasn't able to fund my studies anymore. And that's why I cannot. And that's when I started working instead. I also got into my first real long-term relationship when I turned 18. And this whole relationship lasted six years. So during this entire time, I would just be working to be able to provide. Oh, so you were providing for your mom and your dad as well? Yep, after they retired. So they retired and then you had to support them. What was your brother up to at this point? Nothing really. He wasn't okay. doing much. He was, when I was 19, that's when I think he went into the army to serve a mandatory service for two years. But other than that, he wasn't doing much. He dropped out of school. He didn't really have a job. He would work like odd jobs, you know, like student jobs. Oh, okay. Um, So did you also have to do the military service as well or no? No, it's just for men. So all the men in Singapore, when mm-hmm. they turn 18 or 21, if they're not studying, they have to go to mandatory national service for okay. two years. When you started working, what what did you start to do? I was in the customer service industry. So I started out as a front desk officer and then I would switch. I kept popping around industry. Like I said, like I have this habit of putting myself into different, different experiences so I can take what I can learn, just be able to sort of accumulate all that experience. And I pride myself on being versatile. To me, it was more so of like me proving myself like if I were to throw myself in any field, I'll be able to survive and come out of it great. Was it stressful for you to support your parents? Because that seems like a huge responsibility for someone so young, like to support a household. it it definitely was. On some days, you know, you sit and you think and you you ask yourself, you know, like, why, why do I have to do this? Kids my age get the luxury of parents that are younger, healthier, that are able to provide for them, to give them the luxury of time and the privilege of a funded education so they can pursue their goals, their interests. With me, I had to work my whole life. But then at the same time, every single time I had those thoughts, I would tell myself, you know for a fact life is not fair. You you grew up knowing that. And there's no point. It's very counterproductive for me to be wishing for something that's not going to exist in my life, in my reality. Would I have changed anything about my life? I would say not. It has made me who I am. It has built character. I wouldn't have it any other way, honestly. I really wouldn't. I would repress my emotions, I guess. I put it aside and it's made me become very detached emotionally when it comes to a lot of things. 
Yeah, but I think you're allowed to take stock of the status quo, because like you said, your situation is not the most common one to have to support your entire family. Now, are you expected to do that forever? Uh, I'm still doing it now. Um, Hopefully not forever. And it's one of the main sources for my stress. Mm-hmm. Because there were a lot of things that has happened in the past few years. So from 18 till just last year, 24, it was destroying me. I am still healing from it, but I'm definitely doing much better than I was even seven months back. But mm-hmm. this friend of mine specifically told me one thing, which I tell myself now. Mm-hmm. And it is that um, I have to stop lighting myself on fire to keep mm-hmm. other people warm. Yeah. You can't take care of your family if you're not taking care of yourself. So you mentioned that you were in a relationship for six years, though. What happened there? So I met this guy when I was 18, you know, cute guy, obviously. That bad boy vibe. We're all attracted to bad boys every once in a while, right? We like the danger, the excitement, the offer. And he came from a very traumatic, you know, childhood himself. So he had really bad anger issues. And I was with him for six years. And I only got out of the relationship last year, July. He had major anger issues and it got to a point, especially in the last three years of the relationship from 2016 up to 2019. It started out verbally abusive and then it became physically abusive. I don't let people in in general. I already have a big sense of uh, not trusting anybody. My trust issues have trust issues on top of it. I let this one person in. And he would use it against me. For example, my rape. When he first found out about it, he called me Mm -hmm. a tainted whore. Said I was dirty. Um, He would say things that would completely just destroy you. He would say things like, oh, that's why your parents don't give a shit about you. That's why you're dirty. Nobody wants you. You're a slut. And you, I would hear that on a daily basis. So every time he got angry, every time life wasn't working out for him in a certain way, he would take it out on me. And especially during just last year in 2019, things got way out of proportion. My face was getting bashed in almost on the regular. It got to a point where I would look in the mirror and I couldn't recognize myself and I would just oh start God. crying. I would spend every single night crying. And I was living with this guy, right? For three years. People would ask me, like when people ask me about this now and I tell them, a lot of people don't know how to have basic decency. They would ask you things like, um, why didn't you leave? It's not that easy. Anybody who's been in an abusive relationship will understand where I'm coming from. But it was more so, it got to a point where I really couldn't leave. I would have my keys taken away from me. The one time I called the police, I had my phone thrown against the wall and I was strangled the whole night. And we were living with friends and none of these people would talk or intervene. How? How is that even possible? Well, they're able to sleep with themselves. They close one eye and they don't think about it. It was a group of friends that rented an apartment together. So they were all his friends. So there were at least two other people in the house. Yeah, so they were were his friends. And so you did say this relationship ended. How, How did it end? So he was doing some illegal stuff. Basically what happened was on the 3rd of July just last year, he was smoking a lot of weed as well. Okay, so on the 3rd of July last year, one of his friends was arrested first for wanting to distribute and 10 officers came knocking in 
in the middle of the night at around 2 to 3 a.m. And they were looking for my ex. And I just happened to be collateral damage because I would be terrified of getting my face bashed in. Whenever he smoked, I would smoke and I wouldn't say no. So my system wasn't very clean either. So the officers just came up. They handcuffed him. They took me aside. They just told me, they asked me, like, uh, are you clean? And I just told them, no, I'm not. But that was my way out. To me, I felt like that entire night, that arrest helped me get out of a relationship. It forcefully helped me get out of the relationship. And it's something that I've been asking, like, if there, there is a God and you're here, listen to me. Because this might end in three ways. One, I kill myself. Two, I kill him. Or three, I end up dead in his hands. Take mm-hmm. me out of this because I don't want any of the three options. And that happened. And he is now currently in prison. Mm-hmm. But I was also sent to prison. So yeah. how long did you have to stay in prison? Basically, I was put under rehabilitation. But in Singapore... A rehab center is not like a rehab center where European countries are. Yeah. Rehabilitation in Singapore is still in prison. You just don't have a criminal record. So um, for six months, I was in a cell with four other girls. I only got out in January this yeah, year. Yeah, it's kind of like the whole time you were imprisoned because you're imprisoned by this partner and then you're imprisoned by the state. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So when I first got there, uh, they asked me about my mental history and I had to make a really difficult call when I knew I was going to be spending months in jail. I had to call my dad in the middle of the night so that my dad can get my pet dogs from our apartment and get my stuff. So that call was one of the toughest calls I've had to make. And the last word that I heard from my dad before I went into prison was that I have caused a lot of pain in their lives. Those were the only words that were playing in my head the first few days when I got to prison. I did feel like, you know, I started getting suicidal thoughts. So when the psychiatrist asked me during the mental assessment, like, are you suicidal? I said, yes. Thinking they would send me, you know, to the institute to Mm -hmm. be institutionalized or something like that. At least I would get proper treatment. Maybe I can have a, you know, psychiatrist or something properly talk to me. Boy, did I thought wrong. They handcuffed me to a bed, two arms and a leg. What? Yeah. So how long were you handcuffed <laughs> like that for? For two days. Wow. For two days. They would come and check on you uh, every hour. They would remove everything from you. So before I got cuffed, they told me, if you want to use the toilet, use the toilet now because after this, you will not be able to use the toilet. We will have a potty for you on the side. And if you do need to use the toilet, you have to call the nurse and the nurse will help you. How old were you at that point that you were imprisoned and, you know, tied up to 24. the 24. Okay, so this was just last year. Last year, yeah. So when you got out of prison, where do you go after that? Uh, I'm still healing. I I still am healing. I wouldn't take prison away. I mean, I don't like wasting time in general, and I wasted six months sitting on my ass. I, I lost a lot of things, you know, being arrested. I lost a good job. I was an interior designer then. And I lost um a couple of projects. I lost about 50K in commission. And then I lost my dogs. Obviously, I lost my parents' trust even more. So there's a lot of things that I had to rebuild. Prison has taught me a lot of things as well. Um, I've made friends with a lot of girls. In there, you meet all kinds of people. You really meet all kinds of people in there. Each and every one of them will give you something you never expect, a story you never expect. And it almost became sort of like a sisterhood. I was quite blessed to be in a cell where we were all very loving. We were truly like sisters. We would fight, but we would make up and we had each other's backs because 
prison is already a hellhole. It was a mutual commitment to not make this any more of a hell for each other. Now, I have a really unhealthy habit, which I do not recommend. Uh, mm. When it comes to healing, I tend to repress. Everything that has happened to me, I've become so emotionally detached. It doesn't even get to a point where I'm repressed. I just yeah. detach completely away yeah. from it. Growing up, all I felt is pain, anger, and sadness. And there's always this nagging voice at the back of my head that will tell me, like, if I do have a taste or glimpse of happiness for a little bit, it'll be taken away from you, just like that. And whenever I have to really heal or think about it, I go to ways, I drink a lot. Or I smoke cigarettes a lot, which is not healthy at all. I do not recommend. In prison, I, you know, I started to realize that, you know, there's just certain things you can't keep doing. You want better for yourself. You know you can do better for yourself. Why yeah. are you allowing yourself to stay back? The yeah. I, It almost felt to a point where if I continue this, then it feels like anybody else that has hurt me would have had a hand in winning against me. And yeah. I am not going to let that happen. So I started kickboxing. I started going back to the gym. I started exercising. In my way, that was my way of taking control yeah. over my life again. Um, I still drink once in a while, maybe a little bit more than once in a while, but I still drink. Um, but it's definitely not the point where I'm relying on it. When I first got out, it was literally just got out of prison. You still have to readjust. You still yeah. have to reconnect with the outside world and Six months might not be long, but you are out of touch with the world for a while. Were you able to reestablish your your interior design work? No. Oh, no. Uh, no, yeah. In order to get out of prison, they offer you a job. The pay is utter shit. And my qualifications deserved more than that, but I was quite lucky. The one thing that I can say that is consistent in my life is that I always attract people that want to help me that's not my family. For example, friends. I've always had friends come in, uh, one or two people that truly embrace me for who I am, sees my potential for what it's supposed to be and understands that there is so much hurt that comes with this tiny person and they yeah. want to help me through it. So I was very lucky. Um, One of my ex-colleagues turned super close friend. He started his own company and then he decided to hire me when I asked him if he could help me out. And so now I work for him. It's not even just that. He generally is concerned about my well-being. He always makes sure that I'm all right and mm -hmm. that I am healing at my own pace. Even though mm -hmm. he knows that sometimes I can fall back into unhealthy habits, he doesn't tell me like, this is not how you're supposed to heal. He understands that everybody has their own different yeah. ways of processing trauma that has happened to them. At the end of the day, they have trust that I will come out of it. And even I know I'll come out of it because mm -hmm. I know myself. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not one yeah. to allow it to define me. I've never been yeah. that girl. I've always fought and I'll keep fighting until I get there. Yeah, that's that's one of the things I was going to say is that sometimes when a person goes through any sort of trauma, it's like they fall down a rabbit hole and it just yeah. keeps happening. The pattern, they don't recognize it to stop it. But it seems like you have a pretty good scope of what's happened to you and you have a pretty good reference point from which you want to deviate from. Like now you're like, okay, I don't want to have this sort of life. I'm going to set up these other processes and these other modes for myself. And just to wrap up the interview, I also wanted to ask you, what do you want your future to look like? Like when you envision yourself in five years coming out of all of this stuff, mm -hmm. what does your reality look like? 
So I've always had, I've always had big goals. I was always that girl wanting to, you know, find a way to change the world. I do want to dabble a little bit more in the corporate industry. I want to make my mark. What I want to do mainly though, maybe in five years is make sure my parents are completely okay. They're well provided for, but not to a point where I lose myself in the process. I want to be out from Singapore. I want to live somewhere else, work somewhere else for a couple of years because I always felt like I don't belong in this country anyway. I didn't mm-hmm. grow up the typical cookie cutter Singapore person at all. <laughs> yeah, A lot of Singaporeans here grew up uh, learning or loving the rat race and I want a different kind of rat race. But um, basically what I've been doing on the side lately is I'm actually working on drug rehabilitation reform in Singapore Mm -hmm. because I've been in prison. I've seen the way the system is. The system is broken and needs better work. So what what does that work look like? What are you doing exactly? Uh, I'm still in the midst of planning currently because over here, it's still a huge stigma. Addiction Mm -hmm. is almost looked down upon. They don't realize that um, addiction is not something that's just hey, that person's taking drugs, even though they know they shouldn't be taking drugs, oh, they deserve to die. You actually get comments like this every single time there's a drug bust in Singapore. The comments from other Singaporeans would literally be the most disgusting things you will read. There will be people that say, oh, just hang them, throw them in prison, they deserve it, good job, police. But they don't understand that it's not black and white. It's a lot of gray areas when we're talking about the drug war or about addictions in general. It's not easy. People with addictions, they usually do it to sort of fill a void or to distract them from bigger issues mentally that's happening to them inside. And in order to really fix problems with addictions, you have to go to the root cause of it. I feel like it can be better handled. The prison system is just in general. It can definitely be better. The one thing I've learned, uh, even in psychology in general, is that uh, if you were to treat a person like a human being, uh, a decent, proper human being with kindness and care, people respond to that much better than Mm -hmm. the whip of a cane. So I really respect the fact that you are addressing the fact that the system needs to be changed because I think a lot of people might, you know, go through that experience and then think, okay, I'm done with that. I'm never going to be there again. But you're actually thinking about, I can make this entire system work better in some way. You know, even just by protesting or or having a voice in some capacity. We can't have protests in Singapore. Do you know that in Singapore, in order to protest, a peaceful protest, you have to get a license? Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, whatever, whatever form your work takes, if it's, you know, online advocacy or whatever it might be, it's very respectable that you're trying to make a system that failed you better for another person who's about to enter into it, if that makes sense. Because it sounds like you're very primed to make a better life for yourself. And I don't ever imagine you to be back in prison at all. But no. uh, the fact that you, you want to better it for every other person coming in subsequently is very respectable and I think shows a lot of character. Thank you. Um, And then my final question was, is there anything that you didn't get to mention or share or even a piece of insight or advice that you could provide um, that you didn't get to share during uh, this conversation? Just don't don't give up. I found myself on the ledge so many times. I've I've attempted suicide a couple of times. I, I mean, I was almost beaten to death anyway. Don't don't give up on yourself. Never 
people can break you, people can break your bones, people can say whatever they want. Um, people are going to judge me. I know for a fact that when people listen to this, mm-hmm. there will be a lot of judgments coming in. And I've never been the one to care for anybody else's opinions because I know myself. Yeah. I do feel that uh, people should have a little bit more introspection when it comes to themselves. Be very self-aware of who you are as a person and just make sure that whatever, even if the world is against you and it tries to break you, don't allow your spirit to be broken. Don't allow that to happen at all. It's all you have. Take care of that spirit. The most important thing is that take your time to heal. I'm still healing. I'm still taking my time. And I know for a fact that when it comes to healing, the process is not linear at all. It is a messy process, but the messiness is necessary. Having to experience the pain, the guilt, the fear, the anxiety, experience it. Allow every single emotion to flow, accept it, acknowledge it, and then mm-hmm. let it go slowly. But don't don't ever just take it and throw it away, you know? No, yeah. don't do that. That's not healthy. It's a way of cleansing yourself. These negative emotions, they just have a negative connotation attached to it. It's not entirely negative because it is these same emotions that propel people to do better, that propel ideas to change or inspire somebody else. Sort of the the, the tipping point to greatness. Yeah. Don't don't force yourself to heal, but at the same time, make sure that you still take a conscious effort to do so. Yeah. And the pain is just temporary. And pain is yeah. the greatest teacher. You learn the biggest lessons from pain. It's necessary for growth. That was very eloquently said, and I think a really great way to wrap up this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank <laughs> you for giving me a platform to okay. speak about this. <laughs>